Hi, and welcome to Work Together, a podcast brought to you by Social Optic. Social Optic offer tools and expertise, empowering organisations to gain critical insights, make informed decisions, and work together better. In this podcast series, we ask experts in their field for their views, thoughts, and advice on topics that we encounter with organisations and leaders, ranging from technology and data science to organisational culture and psychology. Roll intro. On today's episode, we'll be discussing a systems perspective of organisations. Joining Benjamin Ellis is Anne-Marie Rattray, PhD, an expert in organisational systems, development and continual learning. Anne-Marie explains the concepts of organisations as simultaneous, dynamic and interconnected systems, philosophies like lean and the viable systems model, and how knowledge works in organisations. Let's dive in. For me, as a viable system, there are five things that I should have to be able to do. I I need to be able to coordinate, to control, to assess, to look into my environment. Now, all those things apply, and it's like the the, the viable systems model is is, um, like a system of Russian dolls. Welcome to the Work Together podcast. I am joined today by Anne-Marie and um, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive in because I'm excited to have this conversation. So Anne-Marie, introduce yourself to the listeners for those who might not have heard of you before. Mm-hmm. Hi there, Benjamin. Thank you so much for having me. Um, me, Anne-Marie Rattray, um, at a point in my career, I suppose, where many people are thinking of retiring, and in fact, I thought about doing the same thing. But my interest really um, stems from, um, say, my, my doctoral work um, 25, possibly more years ago, um, where there was a big shift happening at that point uh, in how work was organised. And in how that work was organised, it was a reintegration of um, it was a philosophy of work that shifted from traditional managers did the thinking, people on the shop floor were the hands who did. Yeah, that's, that's probably a gross uh, misrepresentation, but that's how it was. And then along comes Lean. And Lean really was this philosophy that said, actually, continuous improvement and problem solving is everybody's business, is absolutely everybody's business. And there's a reintegration of learning through doing and thinking thinking continuous improvement and 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 that for me was a real point of pivot so that's where I started and my interest really has really been around how do organizations create systems that enable people to be their best to learn together and to work in a way that is consistent with continuous improvement um so that can be IT systems, it can be the actual workplace, the physical workplace, it can be, what is it, what is it that organisations put in place that creates an environment for um, performance, basically, that's it. And so roll forward to, to, to now, um, I was sort of disappointed, I think, um, the, t- to my mind, the power of lean never really... in my way of seeing the world, never really transformed organisations the way I thought it could have and should have. 
it did piecemeal, but not 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 to the extent that I thought it was going to to be. And then particularly um, the, the the work that I was doing, sort of in the the two thousands, mid two thousands, where I was working with senior people, um, and we were doing masters programs, but they weren't courses at all. It was again looking at what do you do in work, what do you need to do, where's the gap, all this sort of stuff, and people were getting academic credit for what they demonstrated they had learned, the skills they demonstrated they learned from what they'd done. You'd think that was obvious, wouldn't you? It's a sort of a, a pool approach to uh, to learning, to education, uh, rather than pushing courses. And I just sort of thought, oh, so much was possible and so little I could see. You know, it was happening in pockets. but And then it gets to... January 2023, when I'm just about thinking of retiring. And then, and then I read about ChatGPT and I think, oh my Lord, this is no time to go. <laughs> Seriously, this is, to my mind, another pivotal point, another point of pivot. Whether organisations take it and use the power of these technologies with what we already know or should already know from old knowledge about creating environments, performance environments. So you've got performance environments and now the tools, the technologies. We have just got huge potential in front of us if we choose to take it. So I'm going to take some of the different threads and weave them together and I'm going to weave in some of my context as as well so I think I'm going to going to come back to lean for a minute because it's it's interesting that they're in the developer world and the tech startup world there's a little bit of familiar familiarity with lean because of things like lean startup and I think it's uh, worth coming back to that because that that is a form of lean but doesn't necessarily represent lean as it was and i think very few people have had a kind of introduction to what what lean is or or understand what lean is about and i was i think somewhat fortuitous in that in my um early parts of my career i got to work with motorola quite a lot and got introduced to um six sigma and and that was more around quality management. And then when I bumped into you um, a good few decades ago now, um, yeah. <laughs> it started to make more more sense into, oh, no, OK, I get what lean actually is and actually is about. Because as I think you would say, lean is um, it's almost more of a, a philosophy in it's a way, exactly isn't that. it? Than... It's exactly that. It's not about, you know, it's not about... Um, maps or trends or um, I don't know techniques or it, it is but it's much much deeper than that it's, it, it, I keep coming back to it. it's this philosophy of you know how we organise for customer excellence um, and it's about inclusion it's about everyone you know we we all we all have brains, we all have knowledge, we all have ex experience. And to waste that is, 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 well, to my mind anyway, it's criminal. That was always the appeal to me. And that's why I say I was disappointed because lean is a philosophy, I felt, never, you know, never really in a whole scale way 
th th this is just my feeling. Um, and as you say, in the developer world, you know, lean and the terminology became something else. Um, so for me, I'm sort of quite simplistic in the sense of, you know, looking at this treasure trove of old knowledge that we have. And really what I'm searching for is um, first principles, you know, um, can, can they be identified? And I'm saying they can. Um, you know, I'm saying that insight that was gained in a different time under different contexts doesn't necessarily mean to say that that knowledge is no longer applicable. What can be pulled from it? What can be, you know, but, but to your point, I'm, I'm going off now, to, 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 to linking back to your point about, um, you know, the developer experience of Lean and the sort of philosophical understanding of Lean having been a bit lost along the way. I would agree with that. And it's, for me, interesting at looking at a lot of the um, the trends of, of how people view organisation and organisational theory um, and practice at the moment that, you know, the core assumptions of lean and what drove the philosophy I and mean, minimisation of, of waste, um, you know, in terms of people talk about net zero and those sorts of things actually yeah. at its heart was that thing about, you know, making good use of resources, yes. minimising the, the um the, the the waste and the external impact of thing that was kind of baked into the philosophy yeah. and again we're going back right. mm -hmm. nearly half a century ago exactly. and again as you you mentioned it was very empowering it assumed that it, yeah everybody has knowledge to contribute and it was a very um very much assumed and a systems view of business yes. there's a lot at the moment in the narrative that assumes that a, an organization is made up of a collection of individuals and magically stuff happens um and so there's a lot of um what i call focus on the dots not on the lines you know the focus is on on the individuals as opposed to the connections between them and we're going to come back to that again in, in a minute but but lean and the knowledge that built up around it were all sorts of kind of systems theories of business um and again one of the things i think of is and, and it's something we use at social optic the and on cord uh, is something that we have stolen and and this idea of like you know it's a production line and if something goes wrong you, you know stop and apply all your resource to it but this idea that that small things can have a really big impact when you look at them at the systems level. I, you know, every, everything's connected. Everybody's dependent on everybody else through the network of the organisation, um, and that idea is is a very long way away from current thinking about organisations. Absolutely, and relationships are so key and critical uh, to all that. Can, can I speak very briefly about um, two? To, to old, old, I'm putting to old in inverted commas here, um, thinkers who really, really influenced me all the way back then. We're talking in the mid-90s, and they were around well before that. Do, do you mind if I yeah. – because they were fundamental, and they're actually they, – they, they speak to what you're, you're saying, you know, sort of what is an organisation. I find myself very simply saying to myself, what is an organisation? What, what's the process? Actually, I, 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 I struggled with this for a long time. What's the process? Okay, two people. Russell Ackoff, um, I just – you know, you, you stumble upon things, don't you? Um, and he was the first person who I read who made me realise that uh, you, 
again, an organisation, has talked about simultaneous properties. So he said that if you looked at an organisation as a system, on, on, on one way you look at it um, is divisible. You know, you, you, you can, you can analyse it and cut it up and put bits together, you know, like components. Looked at a different way, functionally, i.e. what it does, what it does in practice. It's dynamic, it's connected, it's interconnected. At that time, I hadn't really got into any knowledge of complexity. But the notion of emergence, you, it's not divisible. In motion, in motion, it's interconnected and it flows. So that's, that was Russell Eckhoff. Um, the second person was Carol Weick. And I absolutely, again, I stumbled upon this. It was just a question. I was in the library. I started looking. I thought, what am I going to do for this wretched doctor? I have no idea. Get to the sort of bookshelves where I think I'm going to look at, I'm sort of going to look at organisations, organisational design, all that sort of stuff. Anyway, pick out this wee book and it's only tiny, but it's, I still read it and I still find things that I, I didn't see, you know, 25, 30 years ago. And it's called The Social Psychology of Organising. And in the social psychology, um, you, he talks about processes as flows. And in this flows, he talks about viscosity and different rates of movement and movement going backwards and forwards. And, and I just got this, I just got this vision of movement. Um, and, and that was my first thought, wow, this is, you know, this is great. And then secondly, the, the other thing that I found really interesting, but when you go to the end of the book, he does what I think is a great thing. He says, right, if you take a sort of micro, um, you know, he said, if you can understand how nine people work together, you can understand how thousands work together. And I thought, oh, okay. So he says, when you get a dyad, you and me together, you change me, I change you. And our relationship is never static you know, you've already got the beginning of dynamism in there. Add a third person. He said that changes the dynamics completely, okay? So if you've got a third person, um, dynamics that were there previously, competition, cooperation, um, you know, power, all sorts of things. The third person changes the distribution and what that looks like. Then he says, if you take four people, in theory, and this is without any sort of context at all, you've, you've then got a possibility of stalemate two onto two. Okay, a pair, a pair against a pair, and then it goes up and up and up. So you can get you can get pairs and triads. And he says, when you get to nine, you've got the dynamics of three triads within and across. And I looked at that and I thought, wow, <laughs> that's as cool as cool as cool. And that's always stuck with me. So those th th that gave me the grounding of what I you know if I if I think about organisations. So yes. It's this, this, you know, sets of socially um, you know, relationships in action. But you also have you also have the environment, the rules, the governance, the the regulations, the uh, the workplace, the um, the rule, you know, what you can do, what you can't do, all that sort of stuff. Um, and you, you can map an organisation out, can't you, by looking at it and saying, well, so and so, so and so, you know, sort of value flows, if you like. Um, that's the sort of um, Russell Ackoff's, you, divis, you, you, you can look at something and divide it, but then in action. So the, these two these two thinkers were absolutely fundamental for me. It's just like, yes, they're simultaneous. They're simultaneously dynamic, complex, emergent, interconnected, flows. And at the same time, you can look at it. Uh, another way where you can say, well, that department talks to that department and yeah, 
anyway, so so I, I found those two really, really influential in my early thinking about organisations, organisational design, learning, you know, how organisations work, all of that. So I'm going to take us to 2008 in that yeah. case. And, and, you know, this, that, um, Era plus or minus, uh, I don't know, five years max, uh, was really when um, what at the time was often called social software, yeah. kind of predating social platforms, started to come into That's play. Yeah. And people got to interact digitally in the workplace, which was a whole whole new um, concept and, and kicked off a whole new set of thinking. So let's let's explore that because it does it, it's it's surfaced a whole set of things which i think organizations are only just coming to terms with now aren't they really absolutely absolutely okay that's really yeah so around about that time as well i think you and i maybe um started to to get to know each other around about then eight 2008 2009 thereabouts through the johnson controls um conversations that um i used to do with a colleague um, where we would get senior IT facilities, workplace, uh, you know, anyone who'd got anything to do with work, getting together for big conversations and we'd have a topic. Um, one of the topics that we addressed was um, one of the sessions was knowledge, enter- knowledge management and enterprise social networking. And in, in the course of doing that, what came out of the conversations that, 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 that we convened was just the strength of knowledge and information gets passed around in the informal social networks that we all have, both online and in person. Um, and that sort of linked for me back to Russell Ackoff, you know, looking at the sort of simultaneous properties of organisations. And one of the huge simultaneous properties is formal and informal. Yeah. Um, and at that time, in preparation for this particular session, I remember um, finding a McKinsey paper. And this McKinsey paper was really saying that social networks were were, were sort of dangerous because um, they could not be controlled. The the, the majority of information in organisations, according to their research in this particular paper, which I can source for you, um, you know, they were saying, but it it flies underneath the radar of management. It flies under management radar. You know, it was so so around that time, I think the the realisation of um, informal networks, it was known before. I'm not saying that, you know, this was a new realisation. It wasn't. We all know it. Anybody who's ever worked for five minutes in an organisation knows that. Um, But I think with, you know, the digital, um, that that sort of really, (sighs) did it reveal I don't know if it did, but anyway, we we now had a new way of informal conversations to happen, as well as, you know, the face-to-face by your desk. I wheel my chair over to you and, you know, we have a chat about what we're going to do about this. Um, And I think 
what I found interesting. And, and by the way, anything that I'm talking about here is very partial and it's very personal. I'm not suggesting this is the, you know, that this is the be all and the end all of everything because other people have, have come to similar realisations using different references. You know, there's, there's a, di a diversity of approaches. Um, this, this is just my sort of personal journey, if you like. Um, so then we move on to about 2010 and um, Professor Alex, Pentland, he was at MIT uh, in the human dynamics um, school. And um, he wrote a book called Social Physics. And what he did was he uh, asked volunteers to wear um, badges that censored movement and tone of voice and goodness knows what else. And he collected huge data sets on how information was passed around and blow me down. What would you know? Informal networks. That was that was that you know that that is exactly in organisations um, how information is passed around. Now the digital element of it, yeah, I'm not entirely sure that I can speak to that, you know, with with any great experience because fundamentally humans talk to each other, whether it's face to face or whether it's online, um, and I'm you know I I. I wonder sometimes if if, if online, I, I, again, speaking from, from my own, uh, I censor myself, you know. Um, I, I, I say things to people in person that I would never say online for various reasons. I'm going to be challenged. I'm going to be told I'm a fool, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a psychological safety around sharing and saying something. I think this is my experience. Um, so that's why I'm saying that I personally don't feel like I can speak to that because, um, yeah, just because. But, but yes, so I think there was something very fundamental going on around that time that, that, that really pointed to, you know, from various sources, pointing to informal relationships and dynamics in the workplace as being the major uh, conduit for knowledge and information being passed around. And to layer some of the digital domain on that, I mean, at, at that point in history, I was very much into uh, a technology called wikis, which was like a very... Oh, that's right, yeah. Yeah, um, a way of really linking information and, and capturing it in a very informal way, and what were called folksonomies, which was a way of letting people classifying group things but in a very emergent fashion so rather than sitting down and trying to get the the final right answer you let people categorize things and saw what structures emerged from that to help you understand what was going off but one of the things that hit me about those conversations was the um intentionality of workplace design that i had been blissfully unaware of up until that point even though my you know my very earliest career kind of started with some responsibility for facilities actually for the first time really understanding that the intentional placement of rooms and physical structures in a building had an impact on how knowledge was shared and how knowledge was moved around and then much later on as I um, started to to work with um, the pharmaceutical sector, which is very innovation driven, they're incredibly conscious of how you design your office to make sure that you get those 
informal collisions because that's where for them value gets created those accidental conversations like if, if you know pretty much every major breakthrough has been from a you know an accidental conversation even if it was one that was created by building some structure anyway so the digital domain an interesting thing right now a lot of what what we're working on is things like closed culture and um identifying early on and preventing structural organizational failure so what that looks like is in in healthcare where you get closed cultures that that has an impact on on patient care um when you look at the finance sector um that has an impact in terms of if you look back through the current history of financial failures those were all mm. cultural failures yeah, yeah absolutely and actually a lot of that stuff comes from what you talked about that that aspect or dimension of psychological safety that can be missing in the digital domain and in fact the root cause of some of these things is the fact that where people have been restricted just to operating online in one channel in a very formal way the informal conversations the speaking up and the challenging that are required to keep a culture healthy don't happen and that just as you have to be intentional with the physical office design for organizations that have gone hybrid or you know choose your favorite word virtual offline remote um you have to be intentional about building in the structures for that informal conversation recognizing that that informal communication as i think it's something you've always said is really essential for keeping the organization functional it's not yeah. um you know it's not idle chit chat it's not oh, just no, 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 social no. glue it's no, 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 actually no. part of the outer structure around the process and so um i'm i'm gonna throw in the viable systems name here um so in in, in that that theory where you have things and you have control structures and you have processes and again these can be very informal it's not not processes in the ISO sense is this is how things work you have these outer loops and one of the the most important biggest outer loops is that relationship between people in the organization which actually is one of the expressions of the culture of an organization how people relate together back to that idea of if I can see a you know a team of nine people I know how this organization works um that way of interacting is actually essential for the health of the organization and in a regulated industry essential for the proper function of, of that as a regulated organization because it's those outer loops things driven by people feeling safe to speak up which actually preserve the health of the organization and making sure that it's doing what it needs to do in in the right way okay um Yes to, to all that. I think the, okay, so you and I have talked long about the viable systems model. Um, I'm a fan. Um, my initial interest, okay, so a system can be me, it can be you, it can be the two of us together, it can be you define the boundaries around what the system is, it can be a team, it can be a team, it can be a department. Um, to remain viable, a system has to be able to withstand shocks coming at it from the external environment. Um, what I found is a really esoteric <laughs> oh, the diagram just gave you a sore head. Do you know what? The first time I came across it, I got it 
instinctively. And then I read the words. And when I read the words, I thought, I can't possibly have understood this. And I put it down. And it was about a full six months before I went back to it again. And I thought, actually, I do get it. I do get it. Essentially, what I found interesting is that it's a set of... um, uh, what is that? A set of again principles. I can. Th- th- this is my view of it. People can take issue with me, but this is how I see it. That for me, as a viable system, there are five things that I should have to be able to do. Um, you, I, I need to be able to coordinate, to control, to assess, to look out into my environment, to look into my environment, and I need to do all these things. Now, all those things apply, and it's like the, the, the viable systems model is 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 um, like a system of Russian dolls where you know systems are embedded within systems are embedded within but they're not embedded they, they actually talk across and link across um but the reason that i found it interesting is that this was the first time that i saw something where i saw so if i'm interested in empowerment people making autonomous decisions autonomous decisions it's really a, a way of saying if these mechanisms are applied and there's a big if here um you know because it's not saying that people function like this of course they don't um but theoretically theoretically it demonstrates how it might be possible to have maximized local control of action and decision with centralized coordination so we're back to simultaneous properties again really aren't we um and for me that was the attraction of the viable system model it has been severely criticized it has been it's very seldom seen in practice again this is all just my view but i still think for me there are principles within that that can be taken, pulled out, extracted, interpreted for the context, because the context becomes everything. The context is first and foremost, you know, what are we looking at? What do we think we know? What do we not know? Um, You know, get the shape of what we think our world looks like from our own vantage point, you know, from the point of view of being a one person, a, a, a two person, a three person, a, a team, a whatever, whatever, whatever. You know, moving away from the critique and the criticisms of whether it's still relevant or not still relevant, I personally think that there are insights contained within this very formalised set of processes that says if you do this, you do that, you do that, then this is possible. It is possible to have autonomy with simultaneous coordinated control and flexing and changing among the different components, the different elements that make up the overall viable system. The viable system can be the organisation, it can be the organisation in an ecosystem, because of course now um, organizations don't function on their own you know if if you look at healthcare you know we've now got these ecosystems of independent but connected organizations all sharing expertise all sharing knowledge resources finances you name it to be able to produce something you know to 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 bring something to so the healthcare market i remember talking um listening to i need to yeah it was phillips you know phillips had um i'll dig it out if you're interested it was um 
it was uh, a reflection um, between two people about how Philips had changed from being sort of product focused to being um, eco you know, driven by the relationships um, among, we would have called it all those years ago, supply chains. It's not supply chain, it's a supply network, you know, all the, the components. Anyway, so that's that's the viable system. Um, um, yeah, you, you can go down rabbit holes with this. You really can. But I, I tend to see it quite simplistically. It's, um, it's a useful structure, I think. And one of the other things that, you know, I think thinking back to that that kind of window around 2010, and and as social software came in and digital collaboration, there was this view that 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 pretty much w- wasn't much more complex and hierarchies bad, flat network oh. structures good, and it's interesting that you know just of late i've seen that coming around again it's like oh if we move from a hierarchy to a network all of our problems will go away at which point you kind of go well no but there's there's half a century of theory that tells you that you're going to have a worse problem that you start with and again it's it isn't a dichotomy it's a false either yeah. or between those yeah. two things that both can coexist because if you have network without the hierarchy Actually, your power structures are uncontrolled. There isn't um, accountability. That it doesn't create psychological safety. There's there's a whole set of reasons, but it 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 isn't the case that if you have a very hierarchical system, that that doesn't mean that the decision making is devolved and that people are, you know, autonomous. It's. I think as you were speaking there, Benjamin, I I was thinking if there are younger people, you know, who who just at the, the beginning of their career listening to this, um, I think for me the value of many of these old approaches, old thinking, old insight is about the conversations that it starts. What do we think we look like? What do we think is going on? What again? It's back to the context, and and what light, if anything, can these old thinkers shed on how we move forward, how we understand where we're currently at, and the steps that we're going to put in place to to move forward. Um, you know, not in a predictable way, but in a way that, and, and that brings us into, you know, another area that could get us into hot water. Um, you know, it is, it, it, to, to me, it's valuable in, in, in it, it's the conversations. It's the, this is what, say, the viable system model says. Um, is it, is it relevant? Is it not relevant? If it's not relevant, then why not? Is it useful? If it's useful, why? Why not? You know, to to to, to me, that's that's a sort of big carpet bag of stuff, really, isn't there? That we've collected over the years in terms of frameworks and uh, theories and research, which of course has been superseded and built upon, and um, all of this sort of stuff. But 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 really and truly, I've always seen myself, in a sense, like Mary Poppins. You know, with a big carpet bag. Um, full of things. And when I was working, sort of moving on um, into the into the you know 2010, 12, 14, moving you know later, um, and that sort of brought me into work based learning um, and and so forth. My view was always sit down with a team 
and nobody's nobody's more of an expert in their own cultural and operational context than the person or the team that you're working with you know as an outsider as an outsider I can ask nosy questions as an outsider I can be a provocateur as an outsider you know I I, I don't have to bear the responsibility well I do have to bear the responsibility but but really what I'm saying is that the expertise lies with them and it's then a question of, right, here we go. We've got this bag of tricks. And here's something that I think you may be interested in. And the responsibility then is for them to say, well, actually, that is useful or it's not useful. And again, we're back to why is that? So is the, the, the conversations and the reflections are around what are the pressures? What is it we're trying to do? What are the pressures? What's going to stop us? What are the constraints? What are the enablers? You know, what, what, how do we move forward? And these tools, this old, you know, the old knowledge, the old insights, the old theories become, they become sort of social objects, really, don't they? They become things that provoke conversation and insight. And I think this brings us right all the way now up to the fear around chat GPT, because I feel myself that this is, you know, what we're now offering. You know, we, the, 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 the stuff that can be taken and because what does chat GPT know about the context that you're working in? What does it know about your relationships? What does it know about the people that you're working with? What does it know about, you know, all of that? And, and therefore, to take something that's a starter for 10, if you remember Bamba Gascoigne, <laughs> an <yeah>. old reference. <laughs> yes, um, it was an old uh, yeah, programme on television. But, you know, so you take that as your starter for 10 and then you say, we'll build on it. We amend it. Is it useful? Um, is it insightful? Um, and I see this accumulation of old knowledge um, and old philosophies or philosophies that never really got off the ground. You know, maybe now is the time to take them out and re-examine them for their utility and insightfulness for helping us understand where we are and move forward. There's a a phrase in the data science world that that predates it, um, which is... uh, all models are wrong, yep. but some are useful. Yep. And I think, yeah, that applies to theories. They, they, yes, they exactly. can be a really useful lens for having a discussion about yep. what's going on. Yeah, And that that pivots nicely, I think, into, um, I think, a general misunderstanding of how knowledge works that I think ChatGPT has really surfaced in that in... Um, in a workplace where a lot of people have known nothing but the workplace being digital, um, and that you know what we're looking at now, we're looking at nearly two decades where where that's been pretty much the case, there is a misunderstanding that knowledge is what exists on the hard drive. Correct. And. I was trying to explain it to somebody this week. Um, and my explanation was it's a little bit trying, like trying to, you know, they're saying, well, look, ChatGPT could read all these, you know, the, the conversation logs from Teams and the email threads, and it can, you know, it will have all of the knowledge of the organization and it can operate on it. Um, and from those people listening, Emily's shaking her head furiously. And it's a little bit like saying, ah, well, I've, I've captured all the exhaust fumes from my car. And so now I'm going to be able to make a car because I understand them. It's like, well, 
you know, no, what you've got there is the exhaust fumes. And there's a lot of different things kind of come together. Um, so I think one of the things in Lean that was implicit, but I don't think ever explicitly stated, was the idea that knowledge is a social thing. And that takes yeah, a second exactly, to get your head around. Because exactly. we've all been taught <laughs> exactly. knowledge is what's in your head and you do exams on knowledge. And no. you've... <laughs> That's not knowledge. Anyway, yes. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, Brett. That thing, particularly your perspective around organisational learning, is the fact that that knowledge isn't a passive thing and that it doesn't, it, whilst it does exist in people's heads, that's not where it's operable, for want of a better word. Also, it has a shelf life. It has a real shelf life, doesn't it? Uh, I, I, when I started, when I started oh, a couple of years ago, I started researching just just for my own nosy sake um, around this whole skills agenda. And there was a paper that I read. This is in 2017. Uh, Universities UK, the body that represents, I don't know, it was 126 or however many universities it is, um, and they were looking at the the, the skills that you know, in general, people are going to have to have um, as technology um, presence before, obviously, before what we know about chat GPT and so forth. And one of the things that this paper said was that if you start a three-year degree, by the time you finish it, your technical knowledge is going to be out of date. So, so, which begs the question, and it's, okay, there's a couple of things going around in my head. Information and knowledge are two different things. And information is what we get, isn't it? And then we contextualise it and it becomes knowledge. And I see knowledge as know-how, know-who, know-why. You know, so it, it, it's, and, and that I think, you know, we, we, we now have information, you know, the information hose has been there for, you know, ever since we've had search, but knowledge applied, knowledge of your you know-who, knowledge of your, you know, your, your, your colleagues, your customer, your, you know, the, the social time, know who, know why, you know, what are you doing this for? You know, and, and this sort of brings me around, yeah, so know who, know how, know why. Sort of brings me around to, um, so the skills agenda, um, because I've always been really, really frustrated in the sense that, say, say a university education, um, and I heard somebody the other day there on LinkedIn saying that artificial intelligence can now be used so that we can now super quickly create courses. Courses? Oh, for goodness sake. No question of standing back and saying, wow, with this potential, how can we how can we think differently? How can we be differently? You know, what, what, how can we use these things to augment what we are capable of? Now, Again, I fell into um, doing executive education um, at a university, and this was an entirely different way. There was nothing about courses, so we go into a go into a company uh, that got a strategic thing it needed to do, and so you go through the you know the steps of you get a team of the people inside the organisation, um, uh, someone from the the university, and you get this team, and really essentially you're saying what is it you need to do in scoping out. Um, a direction that you're going to move in. In order to be able to do that, if you look 
and 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 you know, everybody who's done either a bachelor's or um, a master's degree at a UK university. And I'm only talking about the UK because that's all I know about. There's a grid that has been determined at national level, and every university takes it and reinterprets it for their you know for their own courses. And essentially, it's 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 open source. Everybody, everybody, anybody can have a look at it, and it's all around com- skills, skills for complexity. You know, what you're able to do, critical thinking. Um, how are you going to decide when you have difference? So you have a situation um, and there are more than, well, there are several ways that you can choose to go and they're all conflicting and you don't have enough information and you have to make a decision and you probably have to do it double quick time. What skills are you needing to be able to do that? And that's why you go to university. You go to university to develop skills to be able to think and act in complex contexts. That is what it's all about. And it just frustrates the life out of me that we still have people now saying that we can use artificial intelligence to create courses. Now, I'm not saying that courses are useless. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that the whole reason for going to university where, after three years, in the current context, your technical knowledge may well be out of date by the time you finish... So what else is there? What else is there is the skills that you've developed to be able to evaluate, think critically, make decisions, make choices, defend them. Um, it, it, th- that, that's what it's all. And this, I think, hopefully, hopefully, and this is why I want to get back into the game. This is why I, this is why I don't want to retire. Because I now think that with the tools that we've got at our disposal, we can now shine a light all away from courses and onto these skills that ha- that are already out there. That for higher for higher thinking, it's social skills, it's creative skills, it's um, it, it's thinking skills, it's it's decision skills, it's doing it at speed, it's working with paradoxes. It's working with gaps. It's working with how do you trust the information that's in front of you? And that has been problematic for, you know, for a long, long time, really, isn't it? it you know, th- th- those, I hope, I hope that the technologies and the direction that we go in now start to steer general attention towards these in the moment, together, thinking, creative doing skills. I'm going to tie that back up with a, a real life uh, story um, that that probably weaves these threads together. Um, and I think particularly for that relationship between learning and experience and culture in organisations. And there is some work done looking at a particular uh, systemic failure in in um, a regulatory structure. And one of the observations from that, like looking at well, what went wrong, why did that happen? Um, and it was through the, the transition around COVID. And what had happened was the meetings were done on Teams, and that's you know, great, or choose a platform of your choice. It wasn't specific to Teams, but they were done online, and then people hung up. 
And that was that. Whereas pre-pandemic, people would go into the meeting together, they would come out and the senior member of staff would talk to junior member of staff, say, hey, did you see this? Did you see that thing? Or they could challenge them and say, oh, that you, you behave in like a strange way there. Or this thing happened and I didn't notice it. Was that important? And those, again, informal conversations were where A, knowledge creation happened and B, were the experiential learning that enabled those people to develop. And also the, the other thing that, that that happened was it also needed to have a culture where those conversations could happen, where where there there were those relationships across the different levels, sometimes between somebody talking to somebody four levels above them in the organization. So it was an interesting story that brings all of these things together. It's like actually you need the right cultural surrounding, the opportunities for those experiences of learning, and the important knowledge isn't what's in the pages and pages of documentation it's actually that interaction between what's in people's heads that creates the value absolutely and and actually well I, again i i read something oh, a while back that said that your idea that's in your head it, it's only an idea and when it's it's brought out in conversation it's brought out and shaped you know, it's brought out and shown and somebody else will say, you know, what will add to it or, you know, and, and, and between you, that, that's it. So the knowledge has to be brought out and it has to be spoken. It has to be, you know, it has to be communicated and knocked around and tried and experimented with and, and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. Exciting times. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Emery. Thank you very much for your time and really excited to see what you get up to next. And thank you for the learning <laughs> over the years and for sharing your knowledge today as well. Oh, Benjamin, no, thank you. I, I, I'm, I'm delighted to uh, just to, to have another one of our chats of, of old, if you like. So thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Together, a podcast brought to you by Social Optic. If you aren't already subscribed, search for Social Optic Work Together on your favourite podcast service. And if you found it helpful, don't forget to help others find the podcast by giving it a rating, leaving a review and telling others about the show. You can find more from Social Optic on our website, socialoptic.com. If your organisation would benefit from data-driven decision making and desire to work better together, then get in touch through the chat box on our website. Drop us an email or give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. You can also read more on our blog, where we explore more of the themes we discuss on the podcasts. This podcast was hosted by Benjamin Ellis and produced by me, Chris Trim.